Let's turn our attention to the Word of God. We're still in the book of Proverbs. If you want to turn with me to Proverbs chapter 1, the text that our teaching is based this morning is Proverbs chapter 1, verses 20 to 33. Hear the Word of God. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Because I have called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one is heeded, because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. This is God's word. Let's pray. Jesus, when you were speaking to your disciples in the Gospel of John, you promised about the coming Holy Spirit saying that he would guide all people, all his people, into the truth. So we could read your word, but without the guidance, the counseling, the leadership of the Holy Spirit, these words will fall flat. So we are depending on the Holy Spirit to move, to have your way amongst us, to fill us with glory and power, to remind us and bring us to remembrance, not just remembering of the facts, but remembrance that would renew us, that would affect us, that would change us, mind, heart, will, inclinations, and affections towards loving you and loving our neighbor. So Holy Spirit, have your way amongst us. Be our teacher. Guide us into all the truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Bruce Waltke says, as we approach this particular passage of scripture, he calls this the first interlude. And he says, through another fictitious address, this time of personified wisdom, as we read, wisdom cries out, personified wisdom to the gullible, but ultimately to the son, the father escalates the grim threat of certain death for all sinners, now referred to as fools, to the awful truth that their death is eternal. Waltke makes the point, he says, there is no third way between wisdom and folly, and there is no second chance between life and death. If last week's question that I posed to you is, who will you listen to? This week's question that I want to pose to you is, do you have a teachable spirit? How teachable are you? Now, I know we're all sitting here and we're assuming, Teachable, yes. Soft-hearted me. I have a teachable spirit. You could come and rebuke me. You could come and correct me. We all assume that we do. But do we really? Wisdom's crying out. And wisdom is saying the consequences are eternal. Life and death are at stake by how teachable a spirit that we have. 
So I want us to think about this. Do we really? I'll share a personal story in regards to this, because I thought I did, and then I was wakened up to. How little did I know even of myself? So I want to point the finger at myself for a second. I was first introduced to the Reformed tradition back when I was in seminary. I didn't enter seminary knowing anything about the Reformed faith, the Reformed tradition. I'd barely heard of John Calvin. But I got to Westminster Seminary in the fall of 1986, and I was privileged. And I really am humbled. I'm not dropping names, but I'm really humbled, and I rejoice at the teaching I sat under with men like Sinclair Ferguson and Tim Keller and having the opportunity to sit under their teaching. And it was truly an exciting time for me. The scriptures were being opened up to me in a new way, and I was eating it up. I mean, you know how I am now. I kind of get emotional about things, right? I'm trying to keep it down and stuff. I preached at a student chapel in seminary. You know, want to know what my nickname was? They called me the Pentecostal Presbyterian. <laughs> they, sa they said, your doctrine's good, but you're a little excitable. Would you believe this is me Calm down? That that was 30 years ago, so I mean, this is, I'm not real mature now, so that was the, you know, the real immature me, okay? And it was also a time, personally, that was exciting because I met and eventually married Evie. So personally, and all, I mean, things were, it was a great time in my life. Now, Evie absolutely loved the Lord, vital and strong walk with the Lord, loved Jesus, had and continue ha has a prayer life that, to be honest, I learned more about prayer from her than anybody else in my world. But at that time, she didn't come from a Reformed tradition. So now here I was learning all about this stuff, and I'm thinking I'm teachable, but I'm not real sure. And I was, in her words, a heretic-seeking missile. And she was the chief heretic. I'll fire my reformed carpet-bombing guns at you. The whole idea of husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, I went, well, I'm doing that, of course. That wasn't really on my radar, things like understanding, listening, sensitivity, gentleness, all of that kind of stuff. Until one day... I was sitting, and again, I doubt he would know me or know this or remember this, or but I was sitting in Tim Keller's car. He was my faculty advisor, and he's counseling me. And of course, what am I doing? I'm railing against my wife, loving husband that I was. And I'm going, Tim, I don't get it. This is great truth. How can Evie not believe this? This is unbelievable. And I'm going on and on, and he's just sitting there listening. And finally, he sat back in his wise way, and he looked at me, and he says, Jeff, do you enjoy being the Holy Spirit? <laughs> I thought for a second of answering, well, yes, I do. And I thought, I don't think that's the right answer. <laughs> Might have been truthful at the time, but probably not right. Evie says I was different from that day forward. You can't have a teachable spirit, see, without recognizing that every single one of us have blind spots. Blind spots that we are incapable of seeing ourselves, and we need others to carefully, under, in an understanding way and in a gentle way, speak into, to show us things that we do not and cannot see by ourselves. Wisdom is calling and challenging us to pay attention to our blind spots. Are you listening? Do you have a teachable spirit? Or do you just say, I have a teachable spirit? but your heart's like Teflon and the truth just glosses over it. Because wisdom here is speaking, and if you look with me at 
some of these initial verses, verses 20 and 21, this is, good, this is a little radical. It was radical for me when I read this, and I'm like, really? Wisdom here is personified as a lady preacher, a lady sidewalk preacher. Because if you look at it, it says she raises her voice, she cries out, she speaks, and here is this sidewalk woman preacher calling out, and what do we learn about wisdom's call? Wisdom's call is passionate, wisdom's call is powerful, and wisdom's call carries with it a promise. So in other words, I want us to pay attention. Do you have a teachable spirit to three things from wisdom calling? The passion of wisdom's call, the power of wisdom's call, and the promise of wisdom's call. Look with me at verse 20. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? Sounds like wisdom is rebuking us, doesn't it? How long will scoffers delight or love in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? Look at this with me. First of all, recognize our God is a seeking God. And are we not thankful for that? Because which of us would seek God? But he's seeking us. Because look at this. If God is a God of wisdom, and here's Lady Wisdom preaching, wisdom is not waiting for people to come to her. Wisdom is not sitting back and kind of going, they'll come. Just give it a few minutes. Be patient. No, what is wisdom doing? And notice the passion of it. Wisdom is crying out, calling out, raising her voice in the streets. She's looking to see who's teachable, who will respond. The Gospels tell us Jesus' own words. Jesus has come to seek and to save the lost. Our God takes the initiative. Our God is a pursuing God. Our God may be pursuing you this morning. Are you paying attention? You're not here by accident. And then I want you to look at this with me. I want you to notice that wisdom's call does not discriminate between the private and the public. We saw earlier how it was the father and the mother exhorting the children, pay attention to your father's teaching, for, forsake not your mother's instruction. That was last week's text where the teaching went on largely in the home. But now, take a look at this. Lady Wisdom is crying aloud in the streets. At the entrance to the city gates, she's raising her voice. In the markets, she's raising her voice. In the noisy streets, she's crying out. In other words, Wisdom does not discriminate between the private and the public. It's not an either-or, it's a both-and. Apparently, God's truth has a very universal character to it, does it not? God's truth doesn't just say, hang out amongst yourselves. Keep it right here. Keep it secret. Shh. It's our secret. Don't let the world know. Wisdom is crying out, raising her voice, passionately pleading, saying things, how long? Maybe wisdom cares for you more than you care for you. And if you look at the application of this, this to me is absolutely amazing. One of my favorite verses comes out of Ephesians 3, verse 10, that says, Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I challenge you to hide that word in your heart, to memorize. Wisdom is calling out, will you hide God's word in your heart? Because look at that word. It says, through the church, through us, 
Think about this, the manifold wisdom of God. How wise is God? Is God's wisdom, does it have a creativity about it, a beauty about it, a justice about it, a goodness about it, a variety about it? The manifold, the incomprehensible wisdom of God might now be made known. That means made visible, made clear, made tangible, made real. What can't be seen, because with our naked eye we don't see God, God saying, I want you to see me and my wisdom through the church, and more than that, I am making it known and I'm declaring to the rulers and the authorities. That means the elect angels and the fallen angels. I'm, God is making a declaration saying, look at my people. There you will see my wisdom. And wisdom is calling out saying, church, have you lost your public witness and your prophetic voice? Because if you look at this, here's the application the church is to have this crying out, making known the manifold wisdom of God in the streets, in the marketplaces, in the neighborhoods, in our families, both privately and publicly, not retreat into its ghetto or subculture, not retreat into our holy huddle. God intends for his wisdom to be made known through us, through the church. How are we doing at that? Do we really have a teachable spirit? Or do we look to hear the truth and then just kind of avoid its hard edges because we're not really comfortable with it? And look at the passion. You think I was the Pentecostal Presbyterian? Listen to this lady wisdom calling in the streets. Bruce Waltke points out, and I love how he puts it, he says, lady wisdom here is no gentle persuader. She shouts, she pleads, she scolds. She reasons, she threatens, she warns, she even laughs. Pulpit bashing and hellfire preaching if ever there were. Wow. All quite unladylike and nowadays also quite unfashionable. Hebrew scholars point out that if you look at the language that's being used here of the gate, she chooses at the head of the noisy streets and the entrance of the city gates to confront and compel the simple or the gullible to make a decision to accept her in order to safeguard them against the fools. The gate designates both the monumental edifices that were shading the narrow passageway through it and also the side chambers where the elders would sit typically on stone benches to adjudicate and discuss local affairs. Commentators point out that the setting that's being chosen here symbolizes that Solomon's proverbs that he's given pertain to areas like commerce, the court, administration, all these things that could not be mastered without wisdom. So much for the church not having a cultural influence, especially if you look at the fact that the church never goes backwards in the New Testament. If we are the continuation, the fulfillment of Israel, the church is always going forward. And in verse 22, her passionate call and appeal conti continues. Do you hear her passion in the words, how long? Have you ever felt as a parent that you wanted to say to your children, maybe you don't say this, I don't know, maybe you do, that you ever wanted to say, how long? Wives, have you ever wanted to say to your husband, see, I won't discriminate, how long? Husbands, that eh, could be all-encompassing here. Lady Wisdom is making her appeal, saying, how long? And what she's doing is calling us to maturity. She's calling youths into 
adulthood. I want to illustrate it this way and have us think about it this way. All of us are moving into maturity, but youths especially are moving into adulthood. And it's such an important time, and it's also a difficult time. It's a time where foundations have been laid, but now you want, based on those building blocks of foundations, that grounding, you want people, you want your young people, millennials and all that, to internalize it, to experience it, to accept it, to embrace it, and to live out of it. I can't help but think, I'll illustrate it this way, of the classical model of education as an example of how this works. In the classical model of education, that many homeschoolers are using today. It used to be used in our public schools, not so much today. There were three stages of classical education, and they were called the trivium. And I actually think there's a lot we can learn for it with our discipleship, these three stages. The first stage was called the grammar stage. It's when the youngest children are basically absorbing and learning facts. It's the knowledge stage. It's the stage where you have to have correct knowledge, correct doctrine. It's facts, facts, facts. You give it to them when you're young from an educational standpoint because their brains can mostly handle it at that point, and it's memorization and absorption of of facts. It's the building block for future learning. But this is very important. If learning stops there, you don't have wisdom. Learning is not to stop there. And if the word disciple means a learner, it doesn't stop there. It's necessary, but it has to keep going. And the next stage is what's called the logic stage. The logic stage is a time for learning how all these facts relate to each other, how they fit together. So for discipleship, it's how we put doctrine in light of the overarching story, the story of God's narrative, the story of God's mission, what he's doing. You ask your why question. You're looking how everything fits together into a logical, coherent whole. Building on the first stage, but again, not stopping there. That leads to the third stage, which is known as the rhetoric stage. And this is where building on the first stage, the student, the learner, learns to communicate through writing, through speaking, through communicating, through persuading, through internalizing and experiencing and embracing and making it their own. They're able to pass on the education, the knowledge, and the worldview that they have learned. Now, Lady Wisdom is calling and rebuking us at this point and saying, how long will you remain simple and gullible and not move on to maturity? How long will you love your simple ways? How long? So instead of a teachable spirit to follow hard after the Lord and his ways, acquiring knowledge, but then also learning and doing the purpose of knowledge in living it out. Lady Wisdom is saying you should be able to embrace and own and communicate them, but you haven't yet. Do you have a teachable spirit? That's the passion of Wisdom's Call. Next, look with me at the power of Wisdom's Call. Verse 23. And verse 23 tells us, this is such a hopeful verse because it says time hasn't run out. We're going to get to verses 24, which says, You don't have forever on this, but if you look at verse 23, real briefly, it says, if you turn at my reproof, behold, there's a tremendous encouragement and promise here. I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Listen to Lady Wisdom calling, saying, if you turn. What does that mean? That's in a practical way. She's talking about repentance there. If you turn. 
And I'm not a Hebrew scholar by any sense, but I know where to look things up. The Hebrew word there is the word shub, and the central meaning behind that is having moved in a particular direction, you now actually move thereupon in the completely opposite direction. Its original physical notion gives way metaphorically to the spiritual turning of the heart away from evil to good, from folly to wisdom, so that it becomes now the most important term for repentance in the Bible. Again, there's a pleading, if you turn, if you change direction, and then listen to the promise that's held out, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make words known to you. I will pour out my spirit. The Hebrew indicates by pouring out an uncontrolling, uncontrollable, gushing forth. If the fulfillment of this is, what Jesus, is that Jesus is the personification of wisdom, this promise is of the promise of the Spirit, of the exalted, glorified Jesus being poured out upon his children and his church. Jesus said in John chapter 7, verse 37, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Then John adds, now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now that confuses a lot of people. What does that mean, the Spirit had not yet given? The Spirit was not yet given in the economy of God's salvation, how God, the Spirit still applied redemption in the Old Testament. He applied justification and sanctification and all that, but the Spirit was not yet given in the sense of the spirit of the risen, ascended, glorified, and exalted Jesus. That happened on the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, Luke records it for it, and Peter preaches a sermon on it. And you've got the outpouring of the spirit, and all these people are going, what in the world's going on? And Peter explains it. And part of his explanation is he says, he's speaking of Jesus, and he says, Jesus being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. So where is Jesus today? He's exalted at the right hand of God. And having, and again, here's the economy of salvation. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. So when God ascended Jesus, glorified Jesus, he gave to Jesus the Holy Spirit. And what did Jesus do? He poured it out upon us. He says, he has poured out this that you yourselves are hearing and seeing. And this was prophesied way back in the wisdom literature in the book of Proverbs. If you turn, if you listen to me, if you respond, the power of wisdom's call, listen to the promise of the Holy Spirit, it will be like overflowing, uncontrollable, gushing forth Rivers of living water, of the presence and the manifestation and the power of the Holy Spirit, of the risen Christ amongst the people of God for the purpose of witness to the glory of God in the world. Amen. Is the gospel not amazing? Do you have a teachable spirit? I'm starting to wonder about myself because I read this and I read this power and I go, where is it? God doesn't hold, these are not conditional promises. He says, if you turn, and he's seeking us. And what are the consequences? Lastly, 
the promise of wisdom's call. Beginning at verse 24 says, because I have called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind. When distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread or disaster. In these verses, wisdom is laying out her promise. And the promise is twofold. There's a negative promise. Life and death are at stake. And there's a positive promise. Are you teachable? If you look at these verses, one of the things that's very important to note is God doesn't laugh at or mock at disaster, but he's absolutely committed to what is right, what is good, what is just, and what is beautiful. And you either take refuge in God or you don't. There is absolutely no neutrality. Bruce Waltke, again, he says, wisdom rejoices in turning the present upside-down world right side up. When wisdom overturns folly, righteous ousts wickedness, knowledge overcomes ignorance, humility topples pride, and life swallows up death. Jesus, who is the fulfillment of all this, personified wisdom, talked about these reverses of fortune in his kingdom message in the Sermon on the Mount, recorded for us in Luke when he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And while this is not against riches or blessing per se, God riched Abraham blessedly, he riched David blessedly, he riches many. What is wisdom doing? She's doing everything she can to wake you up from your complacency. Because if you listen to this, woe to you who are rich, you've received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, you shall mourn and weep. Why has God blessed you if he's blessed you? He's blessed you so that you can be a blessing to others. It's really as simple as that. And if you look at the absolute terror, especially when you contrast verse 24 with 28, in verse 24, here's will it, wisdom calling, and you refuse to listen. In verse 28, when disaster strikes, you're calling, and wisdom is shut her ears. What is the hope? What is the hope for this? Verse 33 still holds out hope when it says, but whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. I don't know about you, but I want that. Do you want that? How can we have that? Why can we dwell secure and be at ease without dread 
of disaster. I want you to think about this with me for a second. And again, I'm asking you, do you have a teachable spirit? Have you personally sought refuge in God through Christ? What is our ultimate disaster? This judgment, this wrath that wisdom is describing. That's the ultimate disaster. Not all the temporal terrors that we have. They're real and we ought to lament them. But the ultimate disaster is the judgment of God. And now I want you to think about something. What is the gospel? I could have had Andrew read all of Romans 8, but I only picked a portion for him earlier. But in verse 31, it says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? In other words, can any disaster? The answer to that is no, but we need to ask, how is that? Why is that? And he tells us, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you hear that? Why can we dwell secure in not just an insecure world, a terrifying world, a dangerous world, You're given the promise you can dwell secure with confidence, with poise, with nobility, with courage because Jesus Christ has taken your ultimate disaster. The one who always perfectly feared the Lord and personified wisdom was given up, was mocked, was laughed at, was scoffed, was hated, was ridiculed, was exposed, was stripped naked, was shamed so that he would take the disaster for those who did not fear the Lord and deserved the ultimate disaster so that in all these things, we're not just conquerors, we're hyper-conquerors, we're super-conquerors, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Lady, wisdom is calling. And she's crying out to you to find refuge in the ultimate personification of wisdom, Jesus Christ. Whoever will listen to me, the text says. Will you listen? Are you listening? Will you continue to listen? Do you have a teachable spirit? Let's pray. Father, thank you for not giving up on us. Thank you for showing us your grace. And as Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me means believes and continues and continually believes and relies and walks in and is renewed in the gospel, rivers of living water will flow. So may we continue to believe in Christ and depend on Christ. May the one thing we always be looking at in our self-examination is our own unbelief. May we not just assume we're always teachable and always believe. May we look for, and Holy Spirit, give us the ability and the courage to challenge ourselves and look for our unbelief so that we may continually repent 
As Martin Luther said in the first of his 95 theses, when Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he meant for repentance to be a way of life. May turning and changing our direction be continual for us. In Jesus' name, amen.